Well, let me have you uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke 2, where we find yet another birth announcement. Luke chapter 2. My goal this morning is to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And the title of the message is The Greatest Gift Under Unusual Circumstances. The Greatest Gift Under Unusual Circumstances. The year 2020 has been a most uh, unusual year, the most unusual in my lifetime, and probably most of us would say the same. It is one that I do not think we will ever forget. Uh, I just some of the things that stand out from this year. I, I remember on January the 26th, I believe it was, driving from Moreno Valley into Riverside on my way to church and marveling at the thickness of the fog that prevailed that morning, little realizing that right around that time, Kobe Bryant was in a helicopter with his daughter here in Southern California, and that very fog would be the cause of his helicopter going down and taking the life of everyone on board. Uh, Before my sermon was finished that morning, many of you had already received notifications on your phones that Kobe had died. When I sat down after preaching, my son held up his phone to show me the news as we were singing the closing song. The next day, the news of Kobe's death occupied about half of the front page of USA Today. But to the left of that massive story was a small little headline that very few people paid any attention to. The little headline read, and I quote, Rush is on to develop vaccine for coronavirus. The article began with these words, drug makers are hustling to make a vaccine to counter the rapidly spreading respiratory virus that has sickened at least 1,975 people in China and five in the United States. By the time this article appeared in USA Today, there were four cities in China that were on lockdown. A week later, President Donald Trump gave his State of the Union address, an address that represented kind of the high water mark of his presidency. His reelection was all but certain by most measures. But in the days following his State of the Union address, the growing problem with COVID-19 began sucking the air out of every room and grabbing all of the headlines. And it was not long before sporting events and schools began shutting down, and then governments uh, began mandating shutdowns over whole countries, uh, including our state here in California. The stock market, you will recall, was crashing, and people began panic purchasing various goods, creating long lines and a shortage of basic goods. There was an apocalyptic feeling about those days, those early days in March. I remember going out and buying two five-gallon gas containers and going to the gas station one night 
to fill up those containers and to make sure our three vehicles were absolutely full of gas because I was not sure that the gas stations would be open the following day. It was also raining a lot around that time, and I remember longing to see the sun, but it was not forthcoming in its appearance. I remember standing just inside the front door of the cornerstone entrance behind me the day that we canceled our upcoming Sunday service, and I remember looking through the the glass doors and watching the dark clouds and the endless rain falling on this church parking lot. And I remember thinking the thought, so this is how the world ends. I wondered how we as a church would bear up under the challenges that lay ahead of us, having no idea what to expect. When we first decided to shut down our in-person services in March, we simply decided to do that for two weeks, and then we would reevaluate. But then we extended the shutdown through the month of April, and then through the month of May, we decided to resume our in-person gatherings on June the 7th outdoors here in the parking lot on a Saturday night in order to beat the heat. We were so excited to be able to gather together again, and we were looking forward to that occasion. But you will recall that that very week there was an explosion of social unrest that occurred across our country as a result of the death of George Floyd on May the 25th. There were protests and there were riots that were breaking out across our country. Some of those protests were here in Southern California as well. There was a curfew in effect for that night of June 7th when we had our service scheduled. So we found ourselves on Thursday of that week trying to figure out what are we going to do. Should we cancel our in-person services for yet another week? Well, we almost decided to do that, but decided that we were going to have our service no matter what. And so we moved the service from Saturday evening to Sunday morning. And we had our service that Sunday morning of June the 8th. And we have been gathering here in the parking lot almost every weekend since. And here we are, December the 20th. If you would have told me back in June that we would be having our Christmas service in the church parking lot, I don't think I would have believed you. If you would have told me back in March that our hospitals would be as overwhelmed as they are right now in the month of December, I would have had trouble believing you. But here we are, almost to the finish line of the most unusual year of our lives. It's been a crazy year of unfortunate circumstances and challenges that still continue for many people, but also a year in which we have experienced God's faithfulness in ways that I don't think any of us would trade away for anything. Hearing many of you in our Thanksgiving service share your testimonies of Thanksgiving left me freshly struck with appreciation for all the good that God has been doing in our lives over this most amazing year. Some of you are actually now attending Cornerstone 
because of the sequence of events set in motion by the coronavirus. What I've learned this year is that God is sovereign, God is faithful, He is so sovereign and so faithful that He works not in spite of, but even through unfortunate circumstances. And He brings about tremendous good for His people, leaving us with much to treasure in our hearts. This is exactly what we see happening in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Mary and Joseph found themselves in circumstances of misfortune, government mandates, panic, lodging, and yet God prevailed through all those things to accomplish His good purposes of bringing forth the Messiah of the world, leaving Mary and Joseph and the shepherds with much to treasure in their hearts and to praise Him for. We're going to work through these verses this morning in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, and we'll break our study of this passage down into four stages that we see in Luke's account of God bringing forth Jesus, His greatest gift, in the midst of most unusual circumstances. Four stages of God bringing forth Jesus in the midst of of most unusual circumstances. And the first stage, we can express this way, that Mary gives birth to Jesus under a cloud of unfortunate circumstances. Mary gives birth to Jesus under a cloud of unfortunate circumstances. When you read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, that we're going to begin reading through in just a moment, you're struck by a couple things. First of all, you're struck in verses 1 through 7 by the naturalness of the story. There's nothing spiritual in the narrative of verses 1 through 7. In fact, you don't see God mentioned anywhere in these first seven verses. Every event in these verses seems to be merely a natural event, which is the product of a prior natural cause. Mary will end up laying her baby in a manger in Bethlehem because there was no room for her in the inn. And there was no room for her in the inn because Caesar Augustus had decreed that everybody return to their hometown for a census that he wanted taken. So there you go. If you ask Luke, why did Mary's baby end up being born in Bethlehem and laid in a feeding trough there? This would be a part of Luke's answer from a purely natural standpoint. That's the basic feel that you have of verses 1 through 7. Secondly, we also see that there's a feeling of misfortune that actually pervades verses 1 through 7. In fact, you could almost call verses 1 through 7 a series of unfortunate events. We are so used to the Christmas narrative in Luke 2 that every detail seems to have a holy and a sacred air about it. For example, all we need to do is hear the words, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus and were instantly transported to a sacred place. And we're in the Christmas spirit. But I can assure you that most of Luke's readers would not have been transported 
to a sacred place upon hearing these words. In fact, imagine me this morning telling you a story that begins with the words, and there went out an executive order from Governor Gavin Newsom. What would you think? Would you say, oh, that sounds like the beginnings of a wonderful story? Would those words put you in the Christmas spirit? I don't think so. Keep in mind that most of Luke's original readers would have remembered this decree from Caesar Augustus, the emperor, because they were impacted by it, and many of them negatively. And upon hearing these words in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, they would have thought, yeah, I remember that decree. What a hassle that was. And they would have had a story to tell you about how inconvenienced they were or someone they knew was by this government mandate. They may have even told you how dumb and how unnecessary they thought this decree was. And I can assure you that when Mary and Joseph first heard of the decree from this pagan emperor of Rome, it didn't feel sacred to them at all. The decree would have felt unfortunate. It would have been a most unwelcome intrusion into their lives, as were a number of other developments in verses 1 through 7. In fact, as we work through these first seven verses, let's frame the story according to six unfortunate events. And the first unfortunate event is that Joseph and Mary are under the rule of the Roman Empire to whom they have to pay taxes, something the Jews of this day did not like. Look at what the text says starting in verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. This census was levied or was given for the purpose of levying taxes on the citizens of Rome. We're reminded here that Joseph and Mary are living under Roman rule. Every Jew of this day would tell you that this is a most unfortunate fact. And worse than that, these Jews have to pay taxes to the Roman emperor. Even worse than that, in order to levy these taxes, the Roman government here is requiring that people return to their city of birth in order to register for this taxation. Imagine, guys, if we all had to return to the states that we were born in in order to register for a census and pay our taxes because of some mandate that our government imposed on us. I know it's hard for us to imagine inconvenient government mandates, but try to imagine something like this. Imagine the griping that we would hear. Over this past year, there have been times when our government has imposed restrictions that limit travel, but the opposite is happening here in Luke 2. The government here in Luke 2 is forcing, mandating travel. And reading Luke 2, it seems that everyone complied with this government mandate, including Joseph and his wife, Mary, who is with child. In verse 3, the text says, And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. 
Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, which would have been about 60 miles south of Nazareth, because he, Joseph, was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Ladies, imagine having to return to your home state for a census as you are approaching the ninth month of your pregnancy. What would your attitude be toward the government leaders that mandated that you do that? I can just imagine the temptations that this government mandate presented to Mary and Joseph and their families, leaving them with very difficult decisions to make. Should Mary go with Joseph, with her being so far into her pregnancy? Did she have to go based on Caesar's decree, or could just Joseph go, since it was only Joseph whose native city Bethlehem was? Should Mary stay behind with her parents and deliver the baby in Nazareth with her family and friends to help her in the final days of her pregnancy and through the delivery? Or should she be with her husband when she delivered? I'm sure as they process these decisions, someone in the family at some point spoke up and said, how unfortunate the timing of all of this is. Nonetheless, Mary and Joseph trust the Lord, and in obedience to this government mandate, they travel to Bethlehem in order to register for this census. And it's while they're in Bethlehem that another unfortunate event develops, which is that Mary gives birth away from home when, by all accounts, she's alone. Look at what the text says in verse 6. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths. What's odd here is that we're told that Mary gave birth and that she wrapped him in cloths. Normally a woman had a midwife or family members to help with the delivery of a baby, and when the baby would be born, a midwife or a relative would rub the baby down with a saline solution and then wrap the baby and then give the baby to the mother. But here we're told that Mary gave birth and that she wrapped him in these cloths. The commentator Leon Morris says, the fact that Mary wrapped the child herself points to a lonely birth. This leads us to another unfortunate development, which is that Mary has to lay her baby in a manger for animals. Look again at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, and she laid him in a manger. This indicates that Mary gave birth to Jesus in a stable for animals. And the only place to lay Jesus after he was born was in a manger, which is a feeding trough that animals ate out of. No mother I know of would prefer to put her newborn baby in a feeding trough that animals eat out of. 
I don't usually attend baby showers, but I'm pretty sure that it's a rare thing for somebody to give an expectant mom a used animal feeding trough as a gift. But this is the shower gift that God gives to Mary, and she uses it, and she lays her baby in it. And perhaps you read these words and you're left asking, why did Mary have to put the baby Jesus in a feeding trough? That's something that actually demands an explanation because it's so unusual. And Luke knew that you would ask that question. And this leads us to the next unfortunate event that Luke tells us about. Verse 7 tells us that Mary had to put Jesus in this feeding trough because there was no room for them in the inn. The Greek word that is translated in here is used in Luke chapter 22 and verse 11 to speak of the guest room of a house which Jesus and his disciples used to celebrate the Passover. So at the end of verse 7 could be paraphrased this way, because there was no room for them in the guest room of whatever house that they were closest to. Obviously, the houses of Bethlehem were crowded with travelers and Roman officials who were in the city for the census, leaving nowhere else for Mary to deliver her baby than in a stable for animals and leaving her with nowhere else to put baby Jesus than in this feeding trough that animals ate out of. All in all, verses 1 through 7 contains quite the series of unfortunate events. One unfortunate event leads to another and then to another, and the result is that this baby of Mary's is being laid in a manger by a mother who is far away from her hometown and probably feeling quite alone and confused. Imagine being Mary and having to endure all of this. Nine months earlier, the angel Gabriel had appeared to her to tell her that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and cause you to conceive in your womb the very Son of God who will be very great and who will have the throne of his father David. And if you were Mary receiving that announcement from, of all people, the angel Gabriel, what would you expect the circumstances of that child's birth to be nine months later? Whatever Mary expected, I'm sure that it was not this sequence of events that all came about because of a pagan ruler's government mandate. We know that Mary is surrendered to the Lord and all of this, but it's likely that Mary is perplexed and trying to make sense of it all. Maybe Mary is asking, Lord, where are you in all of this? Have I done something wrong? Is this your plan? Have I lost my way somehow and gotten off the path of your plan? I'm sure she's asking some of these questions. And if we had never read this story before, we would be puzzling also. It seems that Mary is finding herself in the midst of circumstances that are the result of the decree of Caesar Augustus rather than the decree of God. 
It seems that government rulers and events are shaping her circumstances rather than the hand of God Almighty. And so we ask, if we didn't know the rest of the story, we would ask, is God involved in all of this seemingly natural and unfortunate unfolding of events? Where is God? And wherever He is, does He know where Mary is? What we can know is that Mary could really use some perspective right now, right? And God is going to provide it for her in the most amazing of ways, just like he's always so good to do so for us. This leads us to the next stage in this story about God bringing forth Jesus in the midst of most unusual circumstances. At first, this next stage... This next event that we're about to see might seem to have nothing to do with Mary, but in the end, we're going to see that it happens in part, at least, for Mary's benefit in order to give her much-needed perspective and much to savor in the midst of her circumstances. Number two, angels announce Christ's birth to some nearby shepherds. Angels announce Christ's birth to some nearby shepherds. Look at the text starting in verse 8. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. Literally this expression at the end of verse 9 reads, They feared a mega fear. This is about as strong of an expression as you can find to say that someone is really afraid. In the mind of these shepherds, an angel of the Lord suddenly standing before them means that they are as good as dead. These shepherds know that there is a God. They know that this God is holy. They know that they are sinners who deserve His judgment And here the angel of the Lord is showing up and these shepherds honestly think, this is how the world ends for me. This, they think, is the judgment that they deserve. And this angel is the messenger of that judgment. But this angel on this day is not here to deliver a message of judgment or to execute judgment on them. In fact, observe what happens starting in verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Stop being afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. You have nothing to be afraid of, the angel is saying to these shepherds. You men are right now experiencing mega fear, the angel is saying, when in fact you should be experiencing mega joy. And this news that I am bringing you is not just for you, but it's for all the people. So do not be afraid. What is the announcement that the angel makes? Why do these shepherds need not to be afraid? Why Should they be joyful instead? Here it is, verse 11. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel is telling the shepherds 
a number of things. He's telling them the location of Christ's birth, which is the city of David, which is what city? Bethlehem. And by the way, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the prophet Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem 700 years before it's actually happening now. So now we realize that Caesar Augustus's executive order was not some intrusion that got in the way of God's plan. It was actually the means by which God brought about the fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy from the prophet Micah. Beyond the location of his birth, the angel tells the shepherds the timing of the birth, which is today. He also tells them who it is that has been born. He says, Christ In other words, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Lord. He also tells them what this Christ will do. He says that he will be a savior. And he tells the shepherds whom he will be a savior for. He says, for you, to these shepherds. And he will not just be a savior for the shepherds. The angel says that this is good news of mega joy, which will be for all the people. The angel then encourages the shepherds to go see for themselves. And he tells them how they will find this Savior. He says in verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. This is a clear sign that is very unique. You can rest assured that on this night, Jesus is the only baby who is lying in a feeding trough for animals. What the angel is saying to these shepherds would let them know to go to Bethlehem. It would also lead them to check the stables where the animals are kept and where one would typically find a feeding trough. And it would lead them to look for a baby that is lying in one of those feeding troughs. So observe what happens next. Verse 13, And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. These angels are giving glory to God for what God has accomplished. They're not caught up in the details that we might look at and call unfortunate They're rejoicing in the good that God is doing. Their benediction here is directed upward to the highest heaven and downward to the planet earth. Glory to God in the highest, they say, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. In other words, peace among men with whom God is well pleased to give that peace. And God is showing that he's well pleased to give this peace to men by bringing his Messiah, Savior, to earth. So how do the shepherds respond? This brings us to the third stage in this story about God bringing forth Jesus in the midst of most unusual circumstances. This is kind of wordy, but let's word it this way. The shepherds find Mary, Joseph, and Jesus and share what they had witnessed. The shepherds find Mary, Joseph, and Jesus and find what they had witnessed. Observe what the text says beginning in verse 15. 
when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. I love the fact that these shepherds do not say, let us go to Bethlehem sometime. Or let us go to Bethlehem tomorrow. Instead, they say, let us go straight to Bethlehem. Notice also that they don't say, let us go to Bethlehem to see whether or not this thing has happened. And we'll believe it when we see it. No, they don't say that. They say, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They're placing confidence in the revelation that has come from God himself to them. And they believe it, that it has happened, even before they see it with their eyes. I also love the fact that these shepherds are not scandalized by the fact that the Messiah is said to be lying in a feeding trough. More sophisticated men would have heard this announcement from the angels and laughed and thought, the true Messiah, he would never be laid in a feeding trough for animals. Or they would have thought any supposed Messiah who's lying in a feeding trough is no Messiah for me. That's the way some people would have thought. But the shepherds are not put off by this at all. If that's where the angel says their Savior is, then they believe it, and they're not troubled at all that their long-awaited Messiah has been born into such evidently humble circumstances. I also love the fact that when these shepherds are told that a Savior has been born for them, they don't respond by saying, Savior? We don't need a Savior. And I hope that's not your response either, because you do need one. I was listening to a podcast on Monday of this week in which Al Mohler, in his briefing, was drawing attention to the obituary of a woman in Kentucky who had passed away at the age of 77. This obituary was written by people who loved this woman dearly And they were endeavoring to speak highly of her and to tell a little bit of her story. And they wrote these words to describe this 77-year-old woman who had passed away. Quote, raised Lutheran, she was attracted to pacifism and attended Quaker meetings for years. But never was comfortable with the notions of a savior. She eventually was drawn to liberal Judaism because of its focus on ethics and study, and she converted to Judaism as an adult, unquote. What a stunning and sad description of this woman that she never was comfortable with the notions of a Savior. To experience salvation... You must embrace the notion of a Savior. And you must embrace Jesus as the one and only Savior that God has graciously provided for you. 
But the reason people stiff-arm this Savior is because to receive this Savior requires what? Humility. Timothy Keller says it this way, There has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. That means that you are not somebody who can pull yourself together and live a moral and good life to earn your way to heaven. These words are from Timothy Keller, and they're spot on. The shepherds, though, hear that there has been born for them a Savior, and they receive this as really great news. They knew the truth about themselves and about their sin. And so they knew that they needed a Savior. So when the angel told them, there has been born for you a Savior, they made haste and went to find this Savior. And that's what we all must do. And if you're here this morning and you have never made haste to this Savior, I pray that you would do that today and come to Jesus and believe in Him and call upon His name this morning. He will happily save you. This is what the shepherds do in verse 16. In verse 16, the text says, So they came in a hurry and found their way. Obviously, they're going throughout Bethlehem, going from stable to stable, looking for a baby lying in a manger. That's the thing they've got to find. And eventually, they come to the right stable, and the text tells us in verse 16 that they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And once they arrive, observe what they do. Verse 17, when they had seen this, in other words, when they had seen the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in this feeding trough, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. After these shepherds see the baby, they turn around and they look at Mary and Joseph, no doubt, with wild-eyed amazement and say, we got a crazy story to tell you. An angel of the Lord appeared to us this very evening, and he told us that there has been born for us a Savior and that he is Christ the Lord. And he told us that we would find this baby lying in a feeding trough. And here he is, they would say to Mary and to Joseph. And I am sure that these shepherds would have given to Mary and Joseph a blow-by-blow -blow account of what had transpired with the angels that had appeared to them. But the text tells us that their primary focus was on making known the statement, making known the statement that had been told them about this child. That's where their focus is. That is the statement that he is a savior, that he is a savior for them, the shepherds, a savior who is the Christ, a Christ who is the Lord, and that this is all good news of great joy for all the people. 
And they would have communicated this to Mary and to Joseph. And so imagine being Mary and witnessing and experiencing this from the shepherds right now. They come rushing in. She no doubt was wondering, what are these guys doing here? They see Jesus in this feeding trough, and then they begin to communicate to her what they had experienced. And as Mary listens, she would be assured that God knows where she is, and God knows exactly where this child is lying. Mary would know that God's eyes evidently have been on them the whole time and that he has been in perfect control of every detail of their circumstances. And Mary would also now know that heaven is rejoicing over this amazing event that has taken place. It turns out that Joseph and Mary are not in this stable because of the decree of Caesar Augustus, but because of the sovereign providence of God working through Caesar's decree. And with this visit from the shepherds, Mary would no longer feel alone. There are shepherds present who are in the know about the great things that God is doing, and they're speaking the truth to her about her son. And think about this, guys, how good God is in this moment to give Mary and Joseph some new friends to fellowship with during this remarkable moment so far away from their families back in Nazareth. The shepherds would have also told others who were around the stable and anyone else they could talk to what had happened. Verse 18 says, And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. These guys are now evangelists. They're just telling everyone what they had experienced and the statement that had been made to them regarding this child being the Messiah and a Savior for them and for all the people. As for how Mary and Joseph respond, we find that recorded for us in verses 19 and 20. And this brings us to the final stage in the story about God bringing forth Jesus in the midst of most unusual circumstances. Number four, Mary and the shepherds are left treasuring and worshiping God. Mary and the shepherds are left treasuring and worshiping God. As for Mary, in verse 19, the text says, But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. This word translated treasured means to preserve something, to keep it close at hand, and to keep something in a safe place so that it won't get lost or stolen. And Mary is doing exactly that with all these things that the shepherds had told her. In other words, she's making a willful decision to remember every detail of what the shepherds had told her, and she is storing every detail in her heart so that she can recall them to mind in moments when she needs the reminder she also does this so that she can share these details with others one day when the time is right. And we can be glad she did this treasuring because it is through her that we learn about everything that is recorded in this narrative. 
most commentators will tell you that in all likelihood, Luke personally interviewed Mary when gathering information for this gospel account. So we're all benefiting from the fact that she treasured these things in her heart. For Mary to treasure these thoughts and things in her heart the way that she is tells us, I think, how much she personally needed what has happened, how much she personally needed to hear what the shepherds have just communicated to her, the words that they have spoken to her perfectly matched the need of her heart in this moment. They lifted her spirits and gave her the assurance that she needed. Verse 19 also tells us that she was pondering them in her heart. She's thinking deeply about what has happened and what has been told to her. She's not content to just hear, but she wants to think deeply about what she has heard. And I'm sure that her thoughts took her into the future as well. As she looked ahead and pondered with the full unfolding of the life and the ministry of this child would end up looking like. If his conception and now his birth have been this amazing, what will his life be like? If his birth is such a crazy mixture of the mundane with the spectacular the natural with the supernatural, what will the life of this one end up looking like? Mary had to keep pondering all this because she couldn't totally figure it all out. And part of the mystery to her was no doubt, how is it that God can bring about such an amazing result inside of such unfortunate and government-mandated circumstances? As for the shepherds, we're told in verse 20 that the shepherds went back to their sheepfolds, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. And they had seen a lot. And their experience has been amazing. But guys, they have seen nothing yet compared to what you and I know to be true and see in the Bible. We have seen in the Bible how Jesus grows up and lives a perfectly righteous life and does so many good deeds that the world itself could not contain. The books that would be written of all the deeds that he performed of goodness and the miracles that he performed. And then he dies on the cross for our sins and is buried in the tomb, but God then raises him from the dead on the third day and then ascends him to his own right hand to the highest position of honor and glory in all of the universe. These shepherds in this moment heard and saw only these things regarding his birth. Yet they were glorifying and praising God as they returned to their sheep that night. We have infinitely more reason to praise and worship God from where we sit today, even right here in the year 2020. Amen? You know, every four years here at Cornerstone for our Christmas service, we, we cycle through four texts that put the spotlight on different parts of the Christmas narrative, and I am so grateful that we landed on Luke chapter 2 on this particular Sunday of this year. 
this story in Luke 2 reminds us that God's providence is powerful and it intersects with seemingly mundane and unfortunate circumstances in marvelous ways. Guys, whatever your circumstances are right now, you can trust the fact that God is involved, His eyes are on you, and He knows exactly where you are. And He has given you His Son and His Word in order to give you plenty to treasure in your heart in the midst of the difficult circumstances that you may find yourself in right now. What Luke 2 teaches us is that there is no circumstance out of God's control. There are no circumstances that are so unfortunate that it, they can't be used of God to further His good purposes in your life and in the lives of others. And this even goes for the actions of our government leaders. Our story today reminds us that God's purposes are never thwarted by government decrees or government mandates. Let governments do what governments do, guys. God is going to glorify himself by working even through the actions of government leaders to accomplish his foreordained purposes. Just as he did using Caesar's decree to bring about the fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 verse 2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So when you hear yet another announcement that sounds like and there went out an executive order from Governor Newsom, you and I can know that we have a God who causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, and for those who are called according to His purposes. And He can even use the decisions of wicked government leaders to bring to pass His gospel purposes on earth. Government leaders may even try to do things that work against His purposes, but in the end, they will only serve to further His purposes, even through the decrees that they deliver. Just ask the Jewish and Roman leaders who conspired to kill Jesus on the cross only to see that cross become the means by which salvation comes to the world. Our God is bigger than our government. And we need to look to Him and know that He can even work through the actions of our government leaders to serve His purposes all of that said, guys, I, I'm sure that, in fact, there are many people in our church family that are hurting this Christmas. Uh, maybe you, during this uh, season, are grieving the loss of a precious loved one who was with you last Christmas. My wife's mother was doing great at this time last year, but two days after Christmas, she was found disoriented in her home and was never the same after that, and she passed away in May of this year, and this will be my wife's and my first Christmas without her. Some of you, especially watching through live stream, are dealing with a recent diagnosis of covid 
in your family or the discovery of a possible exposure to COVID. Some of you watching the live stream this morning uh, really wish that you could be here. And some of you have expressed that to me and it pains you that you are not here but instead are watching via live stream. Whatever your circumstances, wherever you are, God's eyes are on you and he knows exactly where you are. And he's always doing a million things. Not, not in spite of, but even through the inconvenient and unfortunate circumstances you might find yourself in right now. Maybe your circumstances this past year have not turned out like you had hoped and planned, but I hope that you have found much from the hand of the Lord and from his word that you can treasure in your heart. He is always working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But maybe you know of somebody, and we all do, who is hurting and who is alone this Christmas. Maybe you need to reach out to that person and speak a comforting word of perspective or just weep with them as they weep or speak truth to them just like the shepherds speak to Mary and to Joseph when they were alone in a stable for animals far away from home. Maybe you can encourage them and leave them with much to treasure in their heart, just as the shepherds did for Mary. Maybe you can make someone's Christmas brighter, just as the shepherds did for Mary. You see, I'm sure that sitting where we sit here in December of 2020, most of us really wish that things could just get back to normal. But guys, maybe God doesn't want normal because he intends to do something great through our abnormal and to use us as his instruments in accomplishing that. Sometimes I think we act like God needs our circumstances to be normal in order to fulfill his purposes. But that's not the case. Just ask Joseph and Mary. I, I don't know. I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I do not know what 2021 holds for us. The coming year may be even more unusual and more painful than this year has been. But I know that whatever this coming year holds, I know that God is on the throne. And I know that he is in control. And I know that he will work all things together for good. For those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. And if our hearts are open to him and we are willing to be used by him, he's not going to fail to give us much to treasure in our hearts and to praise and worship him for. And I know that he will use us as a church, and as individual believers. And let's go to God and let's just pray and ask him to do his full good work in us and use us in this way. 
Let's pray together. Lord, it's impossible to read this passage and to speak on it and not think of the fact that in hospitals across our country, here in Southern California, here in this city, that they have run out of beds. We had one member of our church who spent the night sitting in an emergency room chair because there were no beds to lie on. I heard this week of people brought to the hospital on an ambulance and they had to sit in the ambulance for hours because there were no beds available. From our perspective, Lord, there is so much misfortune and pain and aloneness and distancing. And then you add into the mix government mandates and the varying opinions on that and how do we make sense of all of this, Lord? And we, we don't. We ponder and we're still pondering. But we know that you know where we are. And we know that you're in control. And we know that you're working all things together for good. For those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And we're just asking, Lord, that you would use us to be like the shepherds word of Joseph and Mary to enter into the aloneness of others, the pain and the misfortune, and to minister your perspective, and that they would feel a little less alone this Christmas. Who knows all the beauty that you're wanting to draw out of us through our circumstances that we find ourselves in and whatever lies ahead. But we just say to you, Lord, we're surrendered and we're ready to be used by you. And may all that you do in us and through us redound to your great glory. And we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.